Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. The passage will be on the screen in just a moment. It's by way of reminder, we've been, uh, we've been gone for a couple of weeks, uh, but we began in January an 18-month sermon series called Refocus. And the goal is to refocus on the person of Jesus Christ, his life, his ministry, his sacrificial death and resurrection, and what that means for you and me. How do we apply that to our lives? We're using Luke chapter 19, verse 10 as our theme verse. So if you're new this week, you may want to jot that down. And that verse says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's Jesus talking about how he viewed his life and his purpose. And so we're taking that phrase and we're putting it into three categories. The Son of Man came, the Son of Man seeking, and the Son of Man saving. And we're at the very beginning stages of this series, and we're looking at the Son of Man as he comes. And so we're going to continue that. That basically is Luke 1, 1 through Luke 4, 13, is the coming of the Son of Man. And that's where we are going to pick it up again this morning, and we'll be at this uh, introductory stage through about the middle of February uh, before we move on. As I've been watching uh, news TV recently, uh, cable news networks uh, more particularly, I've come to the conclusion that I need to become dictator of the United States for just one day. It doesn't need to last a long time. I King, dictator, potentate, whatever you want to call it, but I need complete authority just for one day because I, and I only want to do one thing. You know, don't panic. I'm not going to change a whole bunch of stuff. But I'm going to make it a law that you cannot campaign for the presidency of the United States until one month before the date of the election. You can't, you can't get news anymore. All it is is about who's in whatever state talking about whatever. And, uh, and every news organization basically has the same thing running across the screen at one point or another. Decision 08, you know, as if this were the decision of your life, as if your very essence, you know, if you didn't make this decision, you know, your crisis was going to begin and you're going to be floundering for the rest of your life. Now, I'm not at all critical of the fact that we hold elections and free elections in our country. I am all for that. I love my country. I love the fact that we enjoy so much freedom, but I just don't think I can take another 11 months. <laughs> but you know what? You make decisions every day. Decision 08 is not the only decision that you have made or that you're going to make. You make the decision to get up and come to Green Tree this morning. After church, you're probably going to make a decision to go someplace, either home or out, and get some lunch. If you're a student, probably somewhere around 9, 10, 11 o'clock tonight, you're going to make the decision that you might want to get that homework done before tomorrow morning. If you're a business person, you're going to decide to get up and go try to make a living tomorrow. We all make decisions. As we get into the Gospel of Luke, I want to put a premise on the screen that has to do with decisions, and I want to uh, introduce it this morning. We're not going to answer all of this today. We're just barely going to introduce this topic this morning, and we will continually come back to it as the months unfold. But the premise is this. The Son of Man's coming points to a decision that will be demanded, particularly points to a decision that will be demanded of me. It points to a decision that will be demanded of you. Now, again, we're just introducing that this morning. We're not talking about who's demanding the decision or exactly what all is encompassed in this decision, but we want to lay some foundational groundwork for this uh, premise. Uh, one theologian in writing about uh, this idea said, from Jesus' coming, uh, neutrality is forever impossible. In other words, you have to make a decision about this person, Jesus Christ. And that decision has a huge impact on your eternity. So we're going to introduce that this morning through Luke chapter 2. 
We're going to start at verse 22, and we're going to read through verse 35. And we're not going to study the entire text, but we're going to look at several verses in it as we go through. So with that in mind and thinking about decisions that we need to make and an important decision, let's read God's Word. Luke chapter tw- uh, Luke 2, beginning verse 22. And when the time had come for their purification, there being Jesus and Mary and Joseph, this little uh, family, when the time had come for their purification, according to the law of Moses... They brought him, that being Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. And he said, Now, uh, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for the glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone. Be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we make decisions almost without thinking. So why would uh, this particular decision be any more important than any other one? Father, we are uh, Midwesterners. We, we don't shirk away from responsibility. We, we welcome it. Uh, we tend to be folks who... Uh, work our way through our problems and and figure it out on our own and pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And we don't mind a a challenge. Yet, Father, this decision is radically different than any other one we will make, and it is not dependent upon our strength at all. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's dependent upon us understanding our weakness and our brokenness. So, Father, as we introduce this topic this morning, or, or better way to put it, as you introduce this topic through your word, pray that you would give us hearts and minds that are humble and willing to receive what you want to say. Lord, I pray that that my fumbling about nor my sin would stand in the way of what you want to say to the people gathered in this room. Lord, I know that you know every one of us here this morning, and I know that you have a specific message for each one of us. That's where my knowledge stops, but your knowledge is eternal. You know why you've brought each one of us here this morning. It's not by happenstance. It's not by faith. It's not a mistake. It's not because our parents made us get up and come. It's because you have an appointment with us today. So, Father, I pray that I wouldn't get in the way of that, but that your Holy Spirit and your word, Lord Jesus, would come and would teach us. We pray in your name. Amen. As we look at this text, I I think there are um, many evidences about this uh, decision that is going to be demanded of each one of us. 
Uh, I don't think it's, uh, it's explicitly clear, but I think it's foundational to what Luke is going to say from this point forward. So uh, take it in, in that vein, that what we're doing this morning is simply uh, laying a foundation. We're not building the whole house today. But I want to begin in verses 22 through 24 because I see within Mary and Joseph an example of obedience that I, that I want us to look at for just a second as we think about this, deci- this decision. It says, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Now, What's going on here? Without going into a whole lot of Old Testament history and a whole lot of stuff that will put you to sleep a whole lot quicker than you might already fall asleep, let me just give you the, the, the nutshell of this. There are two things that Mary and Joseph are accomplishing as they come to the temple, and they're coming to the temple exactly 40 days after Jesus has been born. So they've been in, uh, they've been in Bethlehem. Uh, for uh, 40 days, and now uh, they travel a couple miles and they come up to the temple to do two things. First of all, to go through the rite of purification, which is simply an exercise where you come to the temple uh, after you've had a, a male child 40 days later, and you, uh, you basically come into the temple and you're welcomed back into the worshiping community. The reason that God put this in his law was simply to protect the health, the physical health of the nation of Israel. It was to protect the mom after she had given birth, it was allow her to have some time to recuperate. It was allowed the child to, to have some time to gain some health and some strength. And so parents were, entire family that had a child were set apart for 40 days in order to uh, ensure that, that health was in good order. And then they would come to the temple and they would offer some sort of sacrifice depending on their uh, economic strength or weakness. It would be a, a greater sacrifice or a lesser sacrifice in, in this in this particular case, it was one that would be given by someone who was on the lower end of the earning scale, two pigeons or two turtle doves. And it would be the way of saying, we've had a child, mother and child are healthy, and we're re-entering the community of faith. And the priest would accept the offering, accept the sacrifice, and basically say, welcome, and we're, and we're glad that everyone's doing well. Now, that's a little bit of an oversimplification, but that's the basic idea. So they're there for the purification, right? They're also there, however, because Jesus is the firstborn for what's called the redemption ritual. Now, again, without going into a whole lot of detail, you can look in Leviticus chapter 12 and read about the redemption ritual if you'd like to. I'll save you a couple minutes. When the first child was born, that child was responsible to the Lord to serve. But if they weren't of the tribe of Levi, which was the, which was the priesthood, they could go and could offer a, a sacrifice of redemption, so to speak. In other words, they could buy that child back from the Lord would be a way to say it. And it was simply a way that God provided an offering for those who were serving as priests. So if I'm the firstborn, my parents give an offering at the church, that goes to take care of the priests. So the the economic well-being of the priesthood is ensured by the offering given for the firstborn. So that's all that's happening. Mary and Joseph are going up to the temple to take care of these two kind of religious pieces of business that they need to handle. And you say, you know, no big deal, so what? Well, I think there is a point here that I want to catch before we move on, and it's simply this. Mary and Joseph were going to be responsible for raising Jesus. Think about that for just a second. How about if God taps you on the shoulder and says, I'm going to let you raise my son. He's going to be the savior of the world. He's existed from eternity past up to the present, but I'm going to put him in the form of an infant. And until he becomes a man, you're responsible to love him, to nurture him. And because he's a child, he needs to be in his humanity introduced to his relationship with me. Wow. 
That's a pretty serious responsibility. What kind of people is God handing over his son to? Well, Joseph and Mary, you can at least say, you know what? They were obedient to be careful to follow the details of God's law. That's not a big thing. It's not an earth-shattering thing, but I certainly think it speaks to their character. In other words, it wasn't just a confession of their mouth, but it was also the way in which they lived their lives. So that as Jesus grew up in this home, he would see parents who loved the law of the Lord. And I think that is worth noting. I think it's worth noting because one of the questions that I have to ask, and you have to ask if we're disciples of Jesus, given the fact that one of our responsibilities is to help people get to know him and to put their faith in him, is does my life, does my behavior, do my words, do my priorities, do they match up with that obedience? We often talk about the, um, the mission statement at Green Tree Community Church. And we, and we usually skip ahead to the second half of the mission statement, which is to make disciples, to plant churches, and to renew communities. But you know what the first half of our mission statement says? It says that we will serve Jesus in joyful obedience. And when I think about joyful obedience and I read this passage, I see that in the lives of Mary and Joseph. Again, no big deal except that their lives matched up to their creed. And I think that's important, that my life serves as a witness for Jesus just as much as my words. That uh, holds true whether we're talking about my relationship with coworkers, my office, whether it's talking about maybe being in school with my fellow students, whether it's in my family, being a witness to my family. But wherever I go, with whomever I rub shoulders, does my rubbing shoulders point to the grace and the mercy of God? Think about this as parents for just a minute. If you have children, your decision to come and worship God on a regular basis says something to your children about your priorities, your spiritual priorities. Whether or not you uh, give to the Lord of your resources, whether or not you come and serve the greater body of Green Tree Community Church. Does your children ever see you studying the Word of God? Do they ever come down for breakfast in the morning and see you sitting at the table with your Bible in front of you? You give them the opportunity to understand what it means to joyfully follow Christ in your life, or do my words not reflect what I say, or excuse me, do my actions not reflect what I say I believe? Because just as a, a decision is demanded of you and me, so a decision is demanded of our children when they get older. I tell parents when, uh, when we uh, talk together before baptism of an infant, you know, and you'll see we have the little flowers up on the stage. You have a little rose for the kids. You know why we do that? It's not so we have a nice little decoration here on Sunday morning. There's a very specific purpose behind that. I tell the moms, I want you to take that rose home and I want you to press it. And I want you to put it in your Bible. And I want you to set it aside and keep it so you have it. You might have to put a Ziploc bag or whatever, but hang on to it because your child's not going to be an infant very long. He or she's going to grow, and they're going to be a toddler. They're going to be a three-year-old. They're going to be a five-year-old. They're going to be a six-year-old. And you're going to start bringing them to church. And at some point in that process, when you bring them to church, they're going to see a baptism service take place. And you know what kids are going to ask, don't you, if you're a parent? You know exactly what they're asked. Mom, Dad, what are they doing? Well, this is what they're doing, and this is how it works. Then what's the next question? Did you do that with me? Yeah, son. Yeah, daughter. We did that with you. And you want to know why? And there's your opportunity to share the gospel with your child. You see, friends, our actions and our words have an unbelievable impact on our children's decision whether or not they're going to follow Jesus Christ. I remember when I was interviewing at Green Tree, and one of the questions was asked, 
You know, Tom, when, when it's all said and done, let's say that God allows us to, to walk together for years and, and you spend your career at Green Tree. At the end of the day, when it's all said and done, what would you want to be said about your ministry? I didn't have to think about it. I said, that's easy. I would want it to be said that my kids really enjoyed the fact that I was the pastor of Green Tree Community Church, that it wasn't something that turned them away from Jesus, but it was actually something that turned them towards Jesus. And whether it's your children, your coworkers, your extended family, friends, the question is simply this. Does my example of obedience point to the grace and the mercy of God? I don't think it's a big deal that Mary and Joseph went to the temple, but I think it's important. But then I want us to look at Simeon for just a moment, this man filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, this guy who, who is uh, discerning that something significant is going on. He's being led by God. He's devout. Uh, and the Holy Spirit leads him to this, uh, this couple and to this child and reveals to him that this is the Lord's anointing. And I want you to hear a Simeon's song of hope. Look at verses 28 through 30. Simeon takes Jesus up in his arms and he blesses God and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. Simeon sees Jesus and, and there's a very personal reaction on his part. The personal reaction is this. Simeon had been promised that he would see the Lord's Christ. I'm not going to put it on the screen, but back at verse 26, it says that. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So a personal promise to Simeon is being fulfilled. And he breaks out into worship. Why? Because now he says he can die in peace. Think about that for just a second. You know, we have a lot of concerns in our lives, don't we? We, we, we have a lot of concerns about paying bills and raising kids or getting, a, getting an education. Maybe, you know, you, you're come, going back to high school or college pretty soon and you've got to get back to work in the classroom. There all kinds, you know, will, will, will the kids turn out all right? Can I will I be able to take care of my parents? All kinds of concerns. Some of you had all kinds of concerns too. Everybody does. But you know what concern he didn't have? He didn't have a concern about death now that he had seen the Lord's Christ. And I started thinking about that. And I thought, you know what? I have a lot of concerns, but I'm not concerned about death. And, I, and I'm being honest about that. I, I just, I don't worry about it. Why? Because Jesus has paid the price for my sins. And I know that my eternity is secure because I too have seen the Lord's Christ. And I want you to see him as well. And there's something that in Simeon's mind that is so personal. He says, now I can depart in peace. Now I can leave this, this temporary dwelling where I've been and I can go home. It's almost as if he's looking heavenward and as he's in the temple, it's almost as if he hears the angel choir sing. He says, that's where I'm going. And now that I've seen the Lord's Christ, my life has been fulfilled. We, um, we a lot of you helped with this, sent uh, care packages to uh, Beth Werkheiser's uh, brother who, who was killed in action. His company is still in Iraq. And at Christmas, we got those red stockings together and we sent them over. Well, we just started to get some thank you letters from, from some of the troops just this last week that they had arrived and, and that they were really thankful for uh, what folks had given. I don't know what you put in your stockings. One of the things that I put in my stocking, because no Christmas is complete without it, was National Lampoon's family Christmas vacation, you know, Chevy Chase and Oh, you got to have that, and, and uh, you know, some of you obviously haven't seen the movie and don't know what the heck I'm talking about. But we got a letter from this one young man. He said, "You know, it's hard here. It's especially hard being here at Christmas because you know what's going on at home, and you're not part of it. But what you gave us helped us remember home. Wow, <laughs> that's pretty cool. I think, in a sense, that's what Simeon's saying. I've seen a bit of my home now." 
and it's for me. My eyes have seen God's salvation. Friends, do you understand the importance of that? Simeon isn't lost in the masses to God. He's not one number of of billions of numbers, but he is a person that God knows and loves. And friends, that's the same for you and me today. Just as that soldier in Iraq said, you know what? Somebody noticed me. Somebody knew I was over here doing this. So God has noticed you. And Simeon's personal response can be your personal response this morning as well. God cares for you. And I think Simeon's reminder of this is outstanding. But it's not just a personal reaction. It's also a corporate reaction. Look at verses 30 through 32. My eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. This, uh, this activity that God is doing through this child, whatever it may be, is not done in secret. It's not done in the dark. And it's not done just for one or two or a few or a handful of people, but rather it's for all people. It's a community blessing that God is offering. It is inclusive in that all are invited. And it is exhaustive in that this is God's spoken word to the world. He's not going to offer a plan B. Everything that God is going to do for your redemption and my redemption, everything that God is going to do for the salvation of mankind is wrapped up in this one child. And Simeon understood that. He said this is the personification of God's blessing to everyone. And he mentions three things about this blessing. First, he says, I have seen your salvation. In verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. In other words, God, I see that you're going to make everything right. You're going to save us from the brokenness of this world. You're going to begin the, the, the repairing of our, of our sinfulness and what it's brought You're going to restore our spiritual life. God, you're bringing something that we desperately need. You're bringing salvation. He also says the part of the blessing is not only salvation, but he says it is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. In other words, a dawn is coming. Light in Scripture always equates to truth and to purity. Every time you see light used metaphorically in Scripture, it relays to light, or it relays to truth, and it relays to purity. And Simeon is saying, God, your truth is being, the dawn is breaking on your truth. And it's in front of all people. It's not hidden, it's not hard to find, but it's discernible by all. One of the reasons why uh, I picked this screen, this background, uh, for this portion of our series, it's going to kind of change as we go through and just trying to maybe offer some subtle messages as well is because this is a picture of, the, uh, of, of a mountain scene at dawn. You can't really make out a whole lot of details, but you know daylight's coming. And you know it's just over the horizon. And Simeon knows that, that the dawn has broken and that there's a light of revelation, there's a light of God's truth that's coming into the world that will be discernible by all, even the Gentiles. And then he says there is a glory, not just a salvation and revelation, but a glory to your people. Now, glory refers back to the Old Testament and God's presence with his people. It was called in the Old Testament the Shekinah glory. Do you remember when the children of Israel left Egypt and they were led by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day? And that that fire landed, uh, settled over Mount Sinai where God gave the law to Moses? And you remember what all the people said? Moses, you go up to the mountain, we don't want to go. <laughs> because it was too scary of a sight. And God said, that's right. Nobody should even come near the mountain. If you touch the mountain, you'll die. Why? Because you can't be in God's presence and live. God said, no man can see me live. If you see my face, 
you will die. That's how awesome the glory of God is. But all of a sudden, Simeon says something radical in nature has changed. The glory of God is no longer separate and apart. It no longer means our death, but now it means our life. The glory of God is personified in the person of Jesus Christ. Simeon holds up this child. And no wonder he says, I can depart in peace, because now salvation and revelation and glory of God have come. The logical question to this turn of events is who would pass up such a promise? Who would, who would look at these words and say, you know what? I, it's not for me. This is the greatest news the world has ever heard. And yet Simeon not only offers a song of hope, but he also offers a word of caution. Look at verses 34 and 35. <coughs> Excuse me. And Simeon blessed them, <clears throat> said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon says this promise is a double-edged promise. This child, when he grows up and completes his ministry, the task to which God has given him, his father, will cause the fall as well as the rising of many. He will be a sign that is not only accepted and embraced, but he will be a sign against which many will speak. In other words, this child will not enjoy universal acceptance. There are people who reject Christ. There have been people from the very first day of his ministry. We're going to see in Luke's gospel that the first sermon Jesus preaches is in a synagogue. And you know what the people of the town do? They try to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> and he starts out by saying, today I have good news for you. Today this prophecy of Isaiah about the binding up of the brokenness and the healing and the release of the prisoner, that all finds its fulfillment in me. Isn't that great news? And people said, let's kill him. I don't know why people reject Christ. I don't understand what goes through a person's mind, but there are lots of folks, friends, who listen to this message and say, I really don't want to have anything to do with it. And Simeon off offers us, I believe, a somber word of caution this morning that we ought not be assuming that anyone who comes anywhere around the message of the gospel will respond in a po positive manner. His coming, his life, his ministry, his offer of grace and mercy been rejected countless times. Paul gives us a hint as, as to why this might be. You don't have to turn in your Bibles. We're going to put it on the screen. Just, just a couple of verses out of 2 Corinthians 2. Paul says, but thanks be to God in Christ Jesus, who always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So the, the fragrance, think about aroma. Think about things that, that smell, uh, that, that capture your nostrils, so to speak. That fragrance through Paul and through our ministry this day is being, it's being spread everywhere. Well, what, how does everybody react? We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Okay, well, Paul, how are they responding? To one is the fragrance from death to death. To the other, it's a fragrance from life to life. And then he asks the obvious question, who is sufficient for these things? I don't know why, but some people, when they get around Jesus, they smell death. And they move away, the God, away from the gospel, not towards it. We went with some friends last night and we saw the new uh, Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman movie, Bucket List. 
Uh, and if you're, if you're over 18, I would uh, endorse that movie to you. I think it's very thoughtfully done. Uh, and uh, it's PG-13, so it has some language that's not appropriate. But uh, it'll, it'll make you think a little bit. It's about two guys who both find out. They're in their, I guess, their, their mid to late 60s. And they both have terminal cancer, and they just have a few months to live. So they make what's called a bucket list, which is everything you want to do before you kick the bucket. Some of the scenes in this movie are absolutely hysterical. You know, you, you, will, you will laugh till your, till your stomach hurts. But there are all, also some poignant mo uh, moments in this movie about the finiteness of life. And there's one scene in particular. Morgan Freeman's character seems to be a man who has some type of faith, whereas Jack Nicholson's character seems to be the guy that's kind of, kind of rejected it. And they're on a plane. They're on, they're on Jack Nicholson's. He's a billionaire. They're on his plane. They're flying someplace on their adventure, their bucket list. And Freeman's character starts to bring up the question of faith. And, uh, and they have a pretty healthy dialogue back and forth. It actually takes up several minutes of the movie. And, and at the end of the conversation, Freeman says, well, are, are you saying you just, you have no faith, you don't believe? And Nicholson's character responds like this. He said, you know what, I envy people with faith, but I just can't get there myself. I don't understand that response, friends, but I want you to know that that is a response to the gospel. Does it mean we ought not share our faith? No. Does it mean that we ought to just kind of take our toys and go home and not play anymore with the other boys and girls? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that there's a need for perseverance. There's a need for gentleness. There's a need for grace on our part. And people ought not be projects to us. They ought not be people that when they make their decision or don't make the decision, we either accept them or reject them. But we need to see them as God sees them, as people who are lost and broken, just as we are lost and broken apart from Christ. But this word of caution sobers us just a bit this morning. So the application is this. Coming to the point of decision that will be demanded is something that everybody has to face. It's going to come down to this. I'll give you kind of a, a hint into the future, and you already, probably most of you know where we're going with this. The question comes down to what are you going to do with this person, Jesus Christ? Are you going to believe that he is God's grace and his gift for salvation for you or not? But if I'm a disciple of Jesus... The, one of the applications this morning is this. Am I alerting people to this opportunity? <laughs> am I talking about Jesus Christ? I don't mean am I going to run right out of here today, find the first stranger, grab him by the collar, sit him down, and, and, and shove the Bible down their throats. But do I know people in my life that don't know Christ? Is my life a witness to them? Am I purposely praying for them? Am I looking for opportunities to share the gospel? One of my concerns about us as a congregation is I think we've gotten a little slipshod in our desire to see people come to Christ. A lot of what we're going to be talking about and refocus in the next year is going to be in terms of personal evangelism. Who do you know that isn't a believer in Jesus? If you say, Tom, I don't know anybody. All my friends are Christians. Well, that's, that's an issue. You say, friends, like, uh, Tom, i got a lot of friends that don't know Jesus, but they don't know that I do. Well, I'm right there next to you. That's an issue that we need to address because I believe it's incumbent upon us to declare the truth about Jesus. I've started adding this to my daily prayer list. God, would you just give me somebody to talk to today about Jesus? I don't care who they are. I don't care they're old, young, go to Green Tree, don't get, go to Green Tree. You know, maybe somebody serves me coffee up at, up at Spencer's. But just give me somebody to talk to about Jesus. I would encourage you to make that part of your prayer life if you're a disciple. Secondly, it's this. We've already alluded to this. Does my life and my message match? Does what I say, I believe, match how I live? Now, I know I'm going to make mistakes. I know I'm going to fall short. I know I'm not going to, to be perfect. But am I seeking to live in joyful obedience to Christ? Think about what God has done for you through the cross of Jesus. If that doesn't, if that doesn't give you an inner peace and an inner joy, I don't know anything that will. 
And yet, does that live its way out in my life so that people see the salvation and revelation and glory? And then lastly, and I've already kind of said this, it's going to call for patience. It's going to call perspective. I don't know everything. I don't know why this person or that person may have rejected Christ while that person over there accepted him. But I have a perspective that God knows, and so therefore I trust him. And not only am I patient, but I also persevere. I don't give up. I don't quit before the race is over. I don't throw up my hands and say, well, because it didn't work that time, it will never work, and I'm just going to go about my business. I had a gentleman here tell me, it must have been over a year ago, I think, before I went on sabbatical. He came to me and said, you know, I sat here for two years before I gave my life to Christ. I thought, you know what? (laughs) That's probably a lot of people. A lot of folks got to think it over, got to mull it over. The Spirit needs to work in their hearts. What if I said to him after the third Sunday he'd been here, look, if you don't get it by now, you got to (laughs) leave. But how many people do we treat that way relationally? We need a patience and a perseverance because we know that a decision is demanded, but we also know that God's timing is God's timing. My prayer is that refocus will rekindle our passion for personal evangelism in each and every one of us who call ourselves a disciple. The Son of Man came. A decision about Him is demanded. There's no question about that. The question is, will my priorities and your priorities, will my words and your words, will my actions and your actions help lead someone towards Jesus or away from Him? Let's pray together.